Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Life Point this evening. You're the folks that got to sleep in today, right? Well, we're in a series called The Story. This is week 21. We've been in the same series for 21 weeks. And the story is just a chronological arrangement of biblical texts that are arranged with the core stories of scriptures in such a way that we're able to clearly see God's big story. Because sometimes when you open up the Bible and just start to read, it can get just a little bit confusing because things are put in different places and it's not arranged chronologically. So the story, and you can pick one up out at the cafe tonight on your way out, arranges the Bible in chronological order that makes it a lot easier to understand and to follow along with what God is doing with his creation with us. How many of you have ever, like, you had this thing that you wanted to do? Like, you, you just had to get it done. It, whatever it is, you just had to do it. Nothing was going to stop you. Nobody was going to say anything to deter you. You were going to make it happen no matter what. I think we've all probably been at a place like that in life before. For me, I remember when I got this idea that that I felt like we could reach more people with the message of Christ by starting something new rather than continuing to try to revive something old. I just got this idea in my head and I couldn't stop it. And it just consumed every thought. When I thought about ministry, when I thought about my friends who didn't know Jesus, when I thought about my future, all of it was just consumed with this idea that we have to start something new. And that journey for me took several years and went down different paths, but it led me right here to where I am today. And maybe there's something in your life that you just can't get out of your mind. It just continues to burden you over and over again. Maybe it's something like, hey, I want to finish school before I'm 50. You know, I want to get it done. I want to get all the semesters in. And if it takes till then, then that's what it's going to take. I'm going to get it done. Or maybe there's a certain career path that you want to be on and you're working really hard to get there. Or maybe you're wanting to start a business and you're thinking every moment of every day is spent thinking about how can I do this? And it's a great burden on your heart and in your life until you can accomplish it. Well, today's story is about a guy in scripture that had this burden that he couldn't stop thinking about that he couldn't stop focusing on, that he couldn't stop just running it through in his head until he finally stood up and did something about it. There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. Ushers will give you one of those. You can borrow it or you can keep it, take it home with you if you would like an extra Bible or if you don't have one. You can also follow along on the screen. If you're going to look in that Bible, I'm going to start on page 333 in just a couple of minutes. Well, we're picking up the story when God's people are still, uh, most, many of them are still in exile because about a hundred years before this story that I'm going to talk about takes place, people were taken out of the city of Jerusalem, God's chosen people living in the promised land. They've gone through so many different kings and issues and periods of rebellion and periods of restoration. And, and finally, the Persians came in and they wiped out the city. They tore down the walls. They ripped apart uh, uh, the temple. They just totally destroyed it, took the brightest and the best and took them off to Persia to serve in that kingdom. But then many generations later, a king came to power that had mercy on the Jewish nation and he started to let many of them go back to their homeland. 
And we're going to pick up this story in the year 444 BC. That's 444 years before Jesus was born. And we're introduced to this guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a Jewish man who, when he could have gone back to his home country, he could have gone back and tried to rebuild the temple, but he didn't. He could have gone back with all the other ones, but he had a really good job with the Jewish, or with the, the king at the time. And so he's about a thousand miles away from, here's Jerusalem, a thousand miles over here is Persia, where he's living. And he's got this really easy job. So he chooses, well, I'm not going to go back. I'm just going to hang out here with this job. And his job was cupbearer. Now, th- that's a hard job to get today. There's not a lot of cupbearer uh, jobs out there. If you go job searching on monster.com or something, they're not there. But a cupbearer was simply, if you look it up in a commentary, it was like a glorified butler. But they even had a greater responsibility because the king would have had many enemies. Any king of that day would have. And so the cupbearer not only was kind of like the butler for the king, he was the, the taste tester. So when new wine or food would come in, it would, it would get all around the king's table. And then they would say, hey, Nehemiah, come here. Take a drink of that. He would drink the wine and they would go, they watch and they wait. Okay. All right, good. We can eat now. So he would, he would test it to make sure there wasn't poison in it so with, from somebody trying to assassinate the king. He always went first. My boyhood friends that I ran around with, we, we got into a lot of mischievous things like other boys do. I was growing up, I grew up in a very rural area, so there wasn't a lot to do that didn't involve dirt or water or something like that. And so I can remember being in the hills with my friends and, and looking over this cliff and there's this big vine and I'm thinking, okay, you try it and I'll go right behind you if you live, if you, if you make it. I can remember jumping off of a bridge and not sure if the water was deep enough and I was like, hey, you go first. And when you come up, do this and then if it's okay, I'll go. And then I can remember going across this swinging bridge over a river and if we would have fallen in, we would definitely have died because it was so far down and the water wasn't very deep. And they were kind of like my cupbearers. You know, they kind of did that for me. I, I said, you try it. And if, if, it, if it doesn't work, I'm not going to do it. If it works, I'm right behind you, buddy. Go. That's kind of what like Nehemiah did. That's what he did for the king. He taste tested everything just to make sure that it was okay. And this cupbearer named Nehemiah may have never been mentioned in Scripture were it not for this story that he tells in a book that bears his own name, in chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Those are some hard names. You probably don't don't know if I pronounced them right, but I think I did. So what's the month of Kislev? Well, that's for us, that's kind of like late, fall, like November, December time frame, maybe a little bit before that. And the citadel of Susa, that's kind of like where modern day Iran is. That's Persia. And so he goes on to say, Hanak Ni, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's a Jew living in Persia not around Jewish people. So when Jewish people show up, he's like, how are people doing back in the homeland? 
How are they doing? I know they're rebuilding the temple. What's going on? And it says, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he hears about his home city, well, the city his ancestors were from, broken down and the walls are destroyed. Now, this is not new information. This happened 140 years prior to this conversation. So he would have known. Think about something that happened in the United States all in the late, mid to late 1800s, and that's about 140 years ago. And so he would have known what's going on. He would have understood that these walls had fallen down and his homeland was in disgrace. But something was different with this report. Something struck him differently. Something got deep into the core of him and he started to wonder, what should I do? And this wall that was torn down way back in the time of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, if you remember that part of the series a few weeks ago, all of a sudden becomes a burden for this guy named Nehemiah. Now, is it just a wall? No, it's not just a wall. I mean, we can look at it and say, it's just a wall. What's the big deal? The wall represented something. Just like the temple represented the presence of God among them, the wall represented their protection. It was like their missile defense system. It was like their office of homeland security. It made them feel secure. It made them feel secure enough to walk around the city with their families without being fearful that some, someone would come and attack. It made them feel secure that they could go worship their God without savages coming in and killing them. It made them walk through life much more secure because the wall was there. It made them shy away from the insecurity that bothers all humans because the wall was there. So it was much more than just a wall. But Nehemiah hears this and the news, it broke him inside. Something was different. And he says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to rebuild it. And he's probably thinking, it's been 140 years. Nobody else has done it. Nobody else has taken this upon. I'm going to do it. I don't know a thing about wall building, but I'm going to do it. He had like a Popeye moment. If you're over 40, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The Popeye. If you're under 40, just go like go on Nickelodeon or something. I'm sure you can find Popeye or YouTube it or something. But Popeye was a sailor man. Some of us remember that, right? And Popeye had this arch nemesis whose name was? What was it? Right. Say it again. I was going to say Brutus. Was it Brutus? Bruno? Man, I said that wrong this morning. Okay, they probably thought he doesn't know. He's just saying that. So Bruno, and then he had this very unattractive girl named Olive Oil. I'm just calling it like it is. Look at the pictures. She's not attractive. She must have had a beautiful personality or something, but these two guys constantly fought over her for some reason. And they fought about her, and, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the cartoon, Popeye would get fed up, and he would get angry, and he would have this saying that came right before he ate his spinach. What would he say? I've had all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. That's what's going on with Nehemiah. He's like, 
for whatever reason, people who could build this aren't building it. I've had all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. I have to do something about it. And it says he sat down and he wept. And the word for that is not just like, oh, too bad, the wall is torn down. It was like this overwhelming sense of grief. And what am I going to do? And how are we going to fix this? He looked at the world and he saw something was wrong and he was motivated to fix it. If you're taking notes, write this down. What do I see in the world today that breaks my heart? What do I see that makes me weep? What do I see that makes me say it shouldn't be this way? I can remember the first time I saw, not on TV and not in pictures, extreme poverty. I was in the slum of a third world country and we walked into this slum where kids would not get a meal if we didn't help them get it. If somebody didn't help them, they were not going to eat that day. And I can remember those little kids coming up to me and because I'm fair skinned and have hairy arms, they thought that was really cool. And so they come up and they're touching me with, and feeling in my arms and touching my hands and even touch my face. Because the, and their hands were just caked with dirt. And I can just remember that night back where I was staying where it was really nice and warm or cold, whatever we needed. And we had all the food we needed to eat. I can remember thinking, it shouldn't be this way. And if you've been around our church for a while, you remember I came back from that trip and I was like, we got to sponsor a bunch of kids. We got to make sure we get kids sponsored. And you, if you were around here at that time, you had a part in sponsoring hundreds of kids. Some of you sponsored more than one to make sure that the kids had food, the kids had shelter and all the protection that that could provide. And the kids learned about a God who loves them. That kind of rocked my world. And if you've ever experienced something like that, that makes you say it shouldn't be this way. You know what it's like when you see somebody that's just, they're just burned up with passion for something. If you've ever met our youth pastor, Todd Fisher, and you start talking to him about teenagers, and he'll, he'll tell you stories about them, and his lip will start to quiver, it really will. And he'll get a little tear in his eye. Because he loves helping them take steps and he loves telling stories about this kid was dealing with this and this person had this problem at home and they came out of this terrible home life and they're opening up the Bible for the first time and they're following Christ in baptism and, and they're getting to know people and they're turning their life around and he tells that story with conviction. If you've got a teenager, you can trust that they're being led by somebody that truly wants to help them with all that he is and willing to turn his life upside down along with his families in order to help kids get connected with God. That's what it looks like to be passionate about something, to look at something and say, this is not how it should be. And for me, there's a couple of things that just roll around in my mind and heart on a continual basis. The first thing is people who are disconnected from God. I was one of those people once, and somebody reached out to me. I was one of those people who looked at someone with the title Christian, assuming they were judging me, assuming they thought they were better than me. And it was a lot of years ago, but somebody came and said, hey, you want to come to church? You want to study the Bible? And then one day I finally said, how do I get in on this? Because nobody's how I thought you would be. And my heart aches for people like that. If you draw a five-mile circle around this building right here, 9500 Durant Road, the population is 147,000 people. 
According to census data, only 17,000 of those people claim to go to church. I don't think it's that high. That sounds kind of high to me. So that leaves about 130,000 people around us that we go to school with, that we run into in the grocery store, that we pass on the road, that we see in the neighborhood that are not connected to any kind of a spiritual family. That motivates me. I actually have on my wall in my office this chart, and it shows the five-mile and ten-mile radius in the population who's in church and who isn't around both of our campuses. And it's taped up above my computer monitor, so I never forget when I start feeling good, like, hey, we passed 1,100. We had 1,200. We had a bunch of people. I'm like, oh, she's got a ways to go. Still 130,000 people who aren't getting to experience what you're experiencing. That really revs me up and gets me passionate and makes me want to act. Another thing that really makes me want to act is watching people come to church over and over and over and over again and never taking another step. Now, if you're new, if you're just checking out church, check it out. Sit back, sit in the back row, relax, enjoy, check us out, try to figure out what what we are and what we believe, and that's great. Do that, but don't do that for too long. Eventually, you have to take a step. And I pray, the staff, we pray for you to take a step and not just to be a consumer, not just to consume the awesome music, not just to listen to the message that makes you feel like, well, I feel pretty good. That was funny. Said a couple funny things, taught me some new scriptures, a good saying I could write down. Now I'm going to go home and I'll go back and enjoy it again next week. I want you to take a step and not just sit there and not just consume. Consume for a while, that's what it's for, but not month after month, year after year. Don't just sit there. That's why once a month we offer right there a baptism service. You get baptized tonight. The baptistry's up and you're ready to take that step. It's because we've been praying for you and what you're feeling inside is because people are praying for you to take that step and maybe you keep saying, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Well, why not? Just get ready. Just come on and do it. We're ready. We got, we've removed every obstacle possible for you to take that step even tonight. So what about you? What do you see in the world that makes you say it's not as it should be? In 1947, a guy named Bob Pierce went to China. And Bob Pierce noticed that there were a lot of starving children that couldn't get to all the food that was being distributed. And there actually wasn't even enough food for them. And it wrecked his world, broke his heart. And he wrote this in the front of his Bible. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And he came home and he started an organization called World Vision, which probably feeds more hungry children than any organization in the world. And just imagine what it would be like if just this group of people in this room, if we started to say, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Make me passionate about the things you're passionate about. Just imagine what the world would look like if a whole church full of people said, hey, we're 1,000 or 1,200 strong, but there's 130,000 more that we want to know about this message of Christ and get connected with God. I believe we could do it. I believe it would happen. I believe we could have to build a bigger building or more or something. We'd figure it out along the way. But if people got passionate about that, just imagine how much more would be done in the world. Nehemiah found his passion when he heard about the wall being down. And the first thing he did was pray. 
First thing he did, he didn't say, okay, I'm ready to go, let's go. The first thing he did, he sat down and said, God, help me with this. Because without prayer, I will be less and I'll accomplish less. And if you're accomplishing something in life without prayer, you're not accomplishing very much. We need to do things that are so out there and audacious that it would only happen by the power of God. So Nehemiah goes before God and he asks him to give him grace before the king and he says this. He asks the king if he can go build the, tower, build the wall and, he, and the king, he says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now the king had every reason to say, you're a cupbearer. You're a butler. You've never had dirt under your fingernails. How are you going to build a wall? You don't know anything about construction. He probably would have responded, you're right, I don't, but nobody else is doing it, so I'm going to do it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I know it's, it's a burden in my heart, and I'm going to start in the direction I'm supposed to go in, and I know God will deliver. And oh, by the way, king, if you're going to let me go, could you write all the governors for this thousand-mile journey and tell them to give me safe passage? And the king says, okay. Okay, king, I got another thing I need to ask you. Can you tell them to give me timber off of their land so I can rebuild this Jewish gate in a God you don't even believe in? So he made these huge requests. And if I'm ever going to accomplish anything, I need to remember big asks lead to big results. Now be careful how you write that down. <laughs> big asks lead to big results. He was a convicted leader and nothing was too much to ask. Nothing he could ask. There was nothing he wouldn't ask the king. So he asked him for all those things. The king said yes. And if we are ever going to accomplish big things as a church, I'm one of your leaders. I got to make some big asks sometimes. Sometimes I have to stand up and say, hey, you need to be more generous. You need to give more of your money to the church. I don't say it quite that bluntly, but that's really what it means. Why? Not because we want more money. It's because I know what happens when you're generous. Not only does it change you, but it also changes the world. Planting churches, feeding the hungry, helping people hear the message of Christ. That's what happens. And I care much more about that than I care about, you know, better not ask. People might get upset if we ask for money. Don't get upset. Just give. Just do it. Because it makes a difference. And it's connected to those 130,000 people who don't know who Jesus is and aren't connected with a church family to help them get through life. And when we say serve, make a difference, serve here, serve in your community, get in a small group, we make big asks because we have a big vision and we're serving a big God. And there's a big group of people who don't know Him yet. That's why we're willing to make those asks. And that's why Nehemiah was willing to say, King, can you give me all this stuff? Because, hey, it's not about a wall. It's about rebuilding my nation. It's about letting people feel the protection of God. That's what this wall is about. And so a guy that had never built anything before starts this journey to rebuild the wall. And he's so convicted he shows up and he starts casting this vision to the Jewish people and they're like, okay, we'll do it. We don't know how to build. Give us some tools. We'll figure it out. 
I figure we just keep stacking rocks on top of each other and eventually we'll get there. And they just start building and they build and they build and they start moving forward. And if you've ever done anything in life where you start moving forward, you have to know this. When I move forward for God, there'll always be an enemy that wants to stop me. And as soon as his project began, he begins to encounter obstacles and criticism. This group of non-Jews would make fun of them and say, you feeble people, you can't even build a wall that's going to be sturdy enough for a little fox to run across. It'll fall down. And they continue day after day speaking that against God's people, against God's people, telling them they can't do it. You can't do it. And if you've ever been around somebody, if you grew up in a home or you've been in a marriage or something where somebody tells you you can't, it does begin to wear on you after a while. If somebody tells you you're dumb, you can't do it, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you'll never amount to anything. If you're told that over and over again, it's not long you start to believe it. And so this group of people started to believe, we can't build this wall. He's right. Look at this. We're not construction workers. This is a big wall. We can't do it. We're never going to be able to do this. Look, it still looks like rubble. And then Nehemiah comes before all the people with the enthusiasm that that William Wallace had in Braveheart. And if he would have been on a horse and his face would have been painted blue, you could have just cut and pasted his speech right into that movie. And he goes before the people and he says this, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. He's saying, fight for what is right. We live in a world that would love to tell us what we can't do. You can't raise good kids in this world because of all the stuff they got to deal with. I would say fight for your family. You can't, 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's not going to last. I would say fight, fight, fight for your family. You can't get through the world without getting in debt. It's just the way you got to live. Fight against that. Fight against the things that will harm you. Fight against the things that will harm your family, your kids, your spouse, your future. Fight against those things because God will deliver. You don't have to, you don't have to retreat. You don't have to start build, stop building. You don't have to give up. Keep fighting. Remember the Lord because that's where Nehemiah's strength came from and that's the strength he was trying to communicate to these people. It's not easy. I have a friend, a really close friend, who lives in another city, and he dealt for just about a decade with an addiction. And he went to counseling, he worked at it, he tried really hard, he, he, he sought advice, he put up boundaries, and he kept failing over and over and over again. But when he realized that he was just fighting against himself and fighting against the world, and he realized God's already won this battle. I just need to trust him. When he started to realize that, and this guy was a Christian the whole time, things started to shift. And then he was able to overcome. And then he was able to fight and win. You will face enemies in life. You just need to keep going. When Nehemiah faced his enemies, he just kept going. See, we all have an enemy out there. His name is Satan. And the Bible says that his job is to devour us, to seek out and kill us spiritually. In fact, the Bible talks about him as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. 
And if he can just get you to do this one thing, he's won. See, he knows that our greatest need as humans is to be accepted. And if he can make us feel rejected by the world, by a spouse, by a friend, by, some, by a boss, by somebody we're trying to please, then he knows he's got us off center. He knows we're back on our heels and he knows how much easier it is to defeat us. But when you let your need to be accepted be fulfilled by God, you can push through just about anything. When you stop that fear of being, because really people can't reject you. They might reject your ideas. They might reject what you say. They might reject your advances or what you do. They might reject that, but they can't reject you. God accepts you and he fulfills that ultimate need for acceptance that we all have. Most of you would probably be petrified if I said, hey, come up here and finish this off. Got a half page of notes left? Here, you take it. You would be like, uh, no, not me. Well, why is it? Well, because you don't want to stand up here like an idiot. You don't want to stand up here. It's number one fear. People don't want to speak publicly because what if you get rejected? And early on, I had to deal with that and, and wrestle through that until finally I realized you may or may not accept what I say, but you can't reject me because I'm accepted by Christ. I may or may not like what you say, but I can't reject you because God accepts you. And Nehemiah figured that out. He knew that. And guys, I want to do a quick commercial. I know I'm close on time, but I got to say this. On April 11th, you've got to come men to the LifePoint men's event. April 11th, it's going to be awesome. Not only is there going to be great teaching, some really cool giveaways, getting to know other guys that go to our church, there's going to be classic rock. I mean, come on. How could you say no to that? So mark that down, ladies. Make sure your guy comes to this and make sure they're a part of it. It's one evening. The details are in your program. There'll be more details next week, but mark that down and please come to it. So this opposition for Nehemiah just kept going and going and going. And finally, he said, I sent messengers to them, people that were wanting to debate him. And he says, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He's saying, what I'm doing is too important to deal with you. What are you doing in your life that's so important that you could say, I can't stop doing this. I'm raising a family now. I can't do that right now. I got to be here for my kids. I can't do that right now. I got to be a friend to this person. I can't do that right now. There needs to be something in our life where we can say, hey, it's so important. I cannot allow myself to, to get distracted. How many of you make a to-do list? Make to-do list, anybody? And come on, tell the truth. Just fess up. You're awesome if you make a to-do list. You get more done. It's a fact. You have a to-do list and you can check things off. It's, it's, uh, it, feels, it feels a sense of accomplishment when you check that thing off. Many people make a to-do list. Everybody needs to make a to-don't list. Because your to-don't list probably should be a lot longer than your to-do list. Make sure you have one of those. Because a to-don't list helps you make sure that you have the time to do what God has called you to do. So go home tonight and start writing to don't do this. This is what I'm to don't going to do this week because I got too many things to do. Nehemiah had on his to don't list, don't go down and debate these people that it's not going to do any good anyway. So I'm not going to do that because I got a more important thing to do. And they continued to work. And 52 days later, they built a wall 23 feet thick, 23 feet high, and the city was protected. I'll leave you with these two closing questions. What am I willing to fight for? What is it? 
For me, I'm willing to fight to do whatever I have to do besides sin to help reach those 130,000 people that live five miles of our building in our city that aren't connected to a church. I'm willing to say anything to you, ask you to do anything, invite you to come and help because I can't do it on my own. So that's the next question. What am I willing to fight for and who will I ask to help me? Well, I'm asking you to help me reach all those people. The staff and I, we're not that smart. We can help guide you in a direction. We need your help in order for that to happen. Ask yourself those questions. What am I willing to fight for? And who will I ask to help me? They finished the wall. They had protection. They felt secure. But they began to rebel again. They began to make mistakes. They began to mess up. And they found themselves once again separated from God. And then the rest of the story in the Old Testament is that one more prophet showed up. His name was Malachi. And he spoke words of conviction to people, told them to repent, told them to live differently. They didn't. And then for 400 years, it was silent. God went silent. No more fire from the sky. No more animals talking to people. No more God talking from a burning bush. No more prophets showing up silence to get the people ready for what was about to happen and that was an answer that was beyond anything they could build physically they were getting ready to learn about a protection that would come they wouldn't need a temple they wouldn't need a wall because they would have jesus christ right in front of them but the time jesus showed up the wall was completely torn down again but he provided protection that a wall could never provide And when you go through life, you're going to feel this need to be protected. You're going to feel this need to be rescued. And because of Christ, you can have that protection and that rescue over and over again. In the book of 1 John chapter 4, it says this. Think about this when people try to tell you you can't, squash your dreams. You have this promise. But you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people. Because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit in the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder from the life of Nehemiah. God, fill our hearts with the things that fill your heart. Help us to accomplish what you want us to accomplish. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.